Pat Reardon, you are an Irish Jesuit and philosopher. You're giving a talk in the Loyola Institute on Wednesday, Halloween night, the 31st of October, with the question, does the common good mean anything? Does it? A man called Jean Tirol is a Nobel Prize winner in economics, 2014, a Frenchman. And, of course, economics are in trouble as a science, as a discipline, because lots of people are saying to the economists, what about this catastrophe of the financial crisis 2007-2008? And what about the whole eruption of populism around the world? Because a whole lot of ordinary people feel they've been cheated. They've been robbed. There's been an imposition of hardship, of austerity, which has meant cutbacks all around the place in healthcare, social welfare provision, education, and so on. And who's to blame? And the economists are targeted to some extent. And that's what this man Jean Tirol feels, that he has to defend economics. So in, a, in 2017, so three years after he got the Nobel Prize for economics, he published a big book with the title Economics for the Common Good. Because he says, you know, he has to explain how economics actually as a discipline serves the common good. Now that's a theme in Catholic social thought, has always been, that the economy should serve the common good. But what does that mean? What does it mean to say should serve the common good? What follows from that? Should there be uh, more technology or less technology? more hands-on, you know, heavy, hard labor so that more people can be, in, be employed doing things that machines could have done or can do, diggers and uh, JCBs and what have you. So economics is under pressure. And this man, Jean Tirole, is trying to defend economics by saying economics has to be for the common good. So I go to his book to find out. What's he talking about? What does he mean by the common good? And I find he's got one chapter on the common good and he's got 11 chapters on economics. And you say, you know, th this is selling under false pretenses. <laughs> okay, he uses nice general phrases like the general welfare and the good of all. Uh, but those, f and common good, and those phrases on their own don't explain anything. So this is the problem I find uh, not only in this particular case, this particular book, but again and again you have people in newspaper editorials, in speeches, politicians, campaigning, even bishops preaching, and the Pope himself in Laudato Si, they use the phrase common good. Like Pope Francis says, the climate is a common good. But you don't get an explanation of what they mean by it. That is a real problem. So what I try to do in my writings and my philosophizing is to see what can be said with this language? What might it mean? And how do we filter out the waffle? You know, the empty phrases, the pious phrases that don't actually mean anything. Well, that's very interesting. So did this economist that you spoke of, Tyrrell, did he say that economics was amoral, it was value-free, but then you had to use it in the service of a common good, in inverted commas? I know he wouldn't say economics is value-free because, of course, economics is a discipline that's predicated on certain premises. And one of those premises is that it is irrational to waste your resources. Now, there's value there. It's irrational to be inefficient. Here's a nice example, one of the examples that he uses, but it comes up again and again. There's a housing crisis, a housing shortage. 
So politicians then are very sensitive to the demand of people for access to housing and especially first-time buyers. How do I get on the property ladder, young people cry out. And politicians promise help to first-time buyers by putting more money into the market. But that's not efficient because what happens is it just pushes up the price of houses. If there were 20 houses available and 20 million pounds circulating in the economy available for buying houses, then the average price of the houses would be 1 million. But if the government then says, look, we'll help first-time buyers by putting another 20 million into the market, uh, that doubles the average price of houses without increasing at all in the short run the uh, available supply of houses. Now, people get suckered, as it were, again and again by such promises by politicians. Individuals may stand to benefit because they happen to be the ones that, are, that jump ahead of others. But because uh, these 20 rather than those 20 get a house, you know, that from the point of view of society as a whole, that's not relevant. What is important is that there be availability of housing for everyone who needs it. So these are examples of where there has to be uh, consciousness at the political and social level of how we can be duped by political promises and then how we can be helped by economics to be rational in our use of resources. So not to be rational and then not to be fooled by empty promises. So there's a value already implicit in the science of economics. But the economist is not in a position to say to society what it should invest in or what it should want. So that's where there has to be a level of social and political debate, of discourse about how we want to live together, what, we, what kind of structure of society we want to have and what kind of quality of life we want to have together. And on that, of course, there are many, many debates to be had. For instance, about education. What kind of education do we want to make available? That is not answered by saying, well, education is a common good and education should be for the common good. So having a phrase common good doesn't answer the question, what kind of education should we be making available and to whom? At what cost? Paid by whom? So uh, you've been doing a lot of reflection on this and they're good questions because I'm reminded of speaking to Pedro Walpole, a Jesuit who is an environmentalist. And he was talking about, for example, measures to protect the earth, which if you had implemented them would have meant a loss of jobs for a whole lot of people. So everything is interconnected and has a knock-on effect. Is it possible then as somebody like yourself as a philosopher who is studying the term common good, does it mean anything? Can it mean something? Can there be one common good? Well, I'm also a priest and a Jesuit and so someone who has to preach the gospel. And I know there is one common good and that is God. God is the good of all human beings and of all of creation. He is the creator and all of creation has its good in God. Now I can say that but nobody or very few people will understand how that can be true. So that takes analysis and education and it is not available to as it were communicate the the metaphysical premises of the answers I've just given not to mention the uh, demonstration from the scriptures and from the teaching of the church as to why that is the case. So that's why we have to be careful in the use of language and we have to be uh, resourceful in providing the education to people so that they can be, just like in the case of economics, so that they can be informed and competent in discussing the issues that arise around 
around these things. Now, is there a single common good? I've jumped immediately into the transcendent to talk about God. One of the real problems is that because there is a meaning in saying there is the common good for everyone, it does not follow from that that we know what is the common good for political life, even for the church. So that's one of the big insights in the Second Vatican Council in 1965 with the pastoral constitution on the church and the modern world. The bishops of the church realized we cannot assume that everybody agrees that the common good, the fulfillment of all of human life and of all human community is in God. People will not agree on that. So let's leave that aside and see what we can work towards getting agreement on. And that is getting agreement on, as they said, the conditions that will allow individuals and groups to thrive, to do well, to live well. So what are those conditions? Well, they have all sorts of categories, economic, social, cultural, political, legal and then now we're much more aware, you're quoting Pedro, my good friend, Pedro Walpole, environmental, the environmental dimensions uh, where we took for granted in the past. Economists used to call them free goods, water, air, land. These were considered to be free goods because we didn't have any costs in producing them. Now we know we have got costs in maintaining and improving the quality of these great assets, air, water, climate uh, land and so on, soil. So in a way it is very, it is complex, isn't it? You know, this is, I think I'm hearing you say that we use this term as if everybody understands it, as if we all agree to it. And yet when you really sit down to parse it, it is a very complex concept. Yes, I agree. And it is not empty. It is complex. And when I say it's not empty, I'm also suggesting that we don't know everything that would need to be said because we're still in history, in human history, in the process of exploration, of trying to discover what is our common good as humankind. We're very aware of how recent has been the consciousness of the discriminations that arrive because of racism, of sexism, of cultural priority, you know, the predominance of the white Western male. It's only recently in history that we've become aware of that kind of discrimination. And discrimination is the opposite of common, okay? Discrimination is excluding. So what is the mindset? What is the worldview that helps us to be inclusive of everyone? We're in a process of discovering what that is. And the discovery is slow, you know, when you think of the centuries it took to get to where we are now, people sometimes expect that we could be much quicker and faster in, in answering all of these things. But no, the debates that try and clarify and work out what is it, say, in the areas of identity? What are the appropriate relations between genders, between men and women? What are the appropriate sources of identity? These are big debates and they're not going to be answered quickly. But we can anticipate that there will be answers, and the answers will be in the direction of excluding discrimination, ruling out ex discrimination, and making sure that we are building the common, the inclusive community of people who are on their way ultimately to the common good, God. And just finally then, so you're saying that importantly, it is at least good that we have this as something that, broadly speaking, people do 
refer to, even if they don't know what it means or if they're using it loosely, that even that that economist felt the need to write that is, is, is a good in itself. Very definitely, yes. And that's the point of, of much of our language that is poetic as well. We're pointing to things that ultimately are mysterious, not because they cannot be understood. It is because we are not yet in a position to understand them. So one of the great examples of mystery is the human person. The dignity of the human person is the phrase we use to identify this mystery. But someone who tries to explain what is the dignity of the human person gets into trouble very quickly because it is beyond what we can simply articulate. Yet we do need that phrase. We do need to be able to say there is this reality and we must respect it and explore it and try and understand it and comprehend it. And so similarly, we need a phrase, common good, common goods, the common good, as what I call a heuristic, a heuristic, a term that labels something we are in the process of discovering that don't yet fully comprehend, but we need it because otherwise we wouldn't be aware of the direction of our development and our discoveries.